It's great to be with you this morning. I don't know what your week has been like, but my week has been very busy, but very good. Uh, We've had people in for Balloon Fiesta. Jessica, our daughter, came in from Philadelphia. She just left this morning, so we got to spend time with her, and then Jonathan and Alyssa. And, of course, James came in on Wednesday, so that's been wonderful. It's been great having them here as well. And then last night we had the announcement that we have another grandson on the way, so that's exciting. So another hunting partner and bow-tie-wearing young man is on the way, so life is good. My heart is full. It's, it's been a really good week. I want to give you a Project 9K update. Project 9K is our Bible reading challenge here at Netherwood Park. We are challenging ourselves to read as many books of the Bible as we can in 2017. And to date, as a congregation, we have read 4,062 books of the Bible. So continue to read. I hope a lot of you are doing our sprint to the finish, reading through the New Testament here in the last few months. Um, I think that we'll all be enriched and encouraged and strengthened if we will do that. And the reason we have this Bible reading challenge is because we as a congregation believe very strongly in the transforming power of God's Word. Because we believe that God's Word is powerful, we also believe that each and every Christian should be immersed in God's Word, should regularly read and study and meditate on God's Word. So we want to encourage each other to to do that, and we also want to hold each other accountable as we strive to do that. We believe in the power of God's Word. You also need to know this about us here at Netherwood Park. We are a church who believes in the power of prayer. We are a praying church, and we would love to pray for you. If you have something in your life that you know needs to be lifted up to God or something that's in the life of someone that you know and love that you know needs to be lifted up to God, we'd like for you to let us know about that so that we can lift those prayers up. You can use the green card that you'll find in front of you. This is our communication card. On one side of it, you'll see prayer request. If you would just fill out your prayer request and then drop it in one of our collection boxes, you can rest assured that we will honor your request. Either later today or sometime tomorrow morning, we'll send out an email to about 400 different people who are waiting to pray for you. So if you'd fill out your prayer request, drop it in one of the two boxes that you'll see at the back of the auditorium or one that's through these double doors, we'll honor that request. Something else that we want you to know about us is that we are a church who believes in the power of baptism. We are a baptizing church. We believe that it's in baptism that we participate in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We believe that we come out of the waters of baptism having received the free gift of the Holy Spirit. We believe that as we come out of the water of baptism, we're washed clean to lead a new life, a transformed life. So if you're here and you believe that Jesus is the Christ, He's the Savior of the world, and you haven't been baptized... We'd really like to have a conversation with you about that. You can use the same green communication card on the back. You'll see next steps at the top. If you'll fill out your contact information, if you'll check the box that says, I'd like to talk to someone, I'd like to have a conversation with one of the elders or one of the ministers about baptism, you can rest assured that we will contact you right away and we'll start that conversation. And the final thing that I want you to know about this church is that we believe in the church. We believe in the power of the church. We believe that together we are much stronger than we could ever be apart. 
We believe that it's when we bring together our different gifts and abilities and talents that God's church functions the way that God intended for it to function. So if you've been attending here at Netherwood for a while and you haven't let us know that you want to be affiliated with this church, we'd like to have a conversation with you about that as well. If you'd fill out your contact information and check the box that says, I would like to be affiliated with the Netherwood Park Church of Christ, one of the elders or ministers will contact you right away and we'll have that conversation as well. So please, won't you communicate with us so we can communicate with you. Well, we're here in the third week of a sermon series, an extended sermon series that comes from the letter that Paul wrote to the Christians in Rome. Last week we talked about Paul's imperatives. We talked about how Paul had a burning desire, a burning need to go to Rome and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was Paul's calling. It was Paul's mission. And Paul is a man who honored his calling. And he honored his mission. And he honored the gospel by preaching the gospel everywhere. And by preaching the gospel all of the time. And by preaching the gospel to everyone. Paul was not ashamed. He was convinced of the gospel power. And he lived his life in the reality of the gospel's saving power. And that's why Paul was willing to give up everything and to suffer anything just so he could spread the good news of Jesus Christ everywhere to everyone. And as we start today, I'm going to ask you to do what we did last week. I'm going to ask you to join me in echoing Paul's affirmation to do this boldly and proudly and loudly by declaring that we are not ashamed of the gospel So if you're here and you believe in the power of the gospel and the power of the good news of Jesus Christ, if you're not ashamed of the gospel, please join me in this affirmation. Just repeat after me. I am not ashamed of the gospel. gospel. Let's try that louder and bolder and prouder. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And all the church said, Amen. It's always good to start with such a positive affirmation, isn't it? It's especially good to do that today. Because today and then over the next couple of weeks, Paul is going to take us in a direction and to a place that most of us would probably rather not go. Paul's going to take us to a negative place. He's going to take us to a dark place. Paul's going to ask us to lend him our ear so he can tell us the truth about God's wrath. Before Paul takes us there, let's pray together. Father, we are not ashamed of the gospel. We are not ashamed of the good news of Jesus Christ. Father, we know it's the power of the gospel that allows us to enter into your presence. It's the power of the gospel that allows us to stand before you, credited as righteous in your eyes. And Father, it's the power of the gospel that allows us to look forward to the day that we'll be reunited with you in heaven. 
But Father, we also stand before you recognizing that we can't turn a blind eye and a deaf ear to the reality of your wrath. Father, we know that you hate sin. And Father, we know that you would have all to turn away from their sin and turn to you. And Father, today as we talk about your wrath, Father, give us open hearts and minds. And Father, help us as we look at your wrath to also understand how we've been blessed. The brightness, the glory, the light that comes with the gospel. Father, it's in the name of Jesus, who is the Christ, we pray. Amen. The wrath of God. It's not an easy topic. I imagine most of us would really rather not talk about God's wrath. And I've got to be honest with you, I'd really just as soon not preach about God's wrath. And I imagine those Roman Christians, as they received Paul's letter and heard it for the first time, I imagine they weren't really thrilled when Paul turned his attention and their ears to God's wrath. And as we read this letter, it seems that in many ways Paul makes a rather abrupt transition. Paul is talking about things that we like to hear about. He talks about power and salvation and righteousness and belief and faith. And then he moves to God's wrath without even a pause. There's no transition. There's no segue. There's no cute little story to soften the blow. He moves to God's wrath. Listen to how it sounds in chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. Paul writes, for in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. The righteousness of God is revealed and the wrath of God is being revealed. And Paul presents it very matter-of-factly. He says, right now, even as you're hearing these words, God's righteousness and God's wrath are both being revealed. And the first question that occurs to me is this. Is, is Paul right? Can a righteousness from God and the wrath of God both be revealed at the same time? I also have to wonder something else. As people who are willing to affirm that we're not ashamed of the gospel because it reveals God's righteousness, would we also be as comfortable and as willing to affirm that we're not ashamed of the wrath of God? And the reason I wonder about that is that I think that often we at least act like we're ashamed of God's wrath. It's really not something that we, me included, like to talk about. I think in many ways we, me included, would rather treat the wrath of God like it's some ancient thing, like it's an Old Testament thing, like somehow God has evolved since those wrath of God days and he's now much more politically correct. He's all about righteousness and salvation and reward without any of those inconvenient things about anger and condemnation and punishment. 
So I ask, are we ashamed of God's wrath? See, Paul seems to be saying we can't have it both ways. We can't accept the righteousness without also accepting the wrath. They're linked together. And Paul says they're revealed together. Righteousness is from God and wrath is of God. They're from and of the same God. So how can we not be ashamed of one and yet be ashamed of the other? And Paul's answer is we can't. And his answer is we won't. Paul's answer is we can't embrace God's righteousness and then turn around and be ashamed of his wrath. Paul says we won't be ashamed of God's wrath if we really understand the truth of God's wrath. And in today's passage from Romans, Paul is going to begin to help us understand that truth. But before he does that, we need to lay some groundwork, some biblical groundwork to help us understand the truth about God's wrath. And the first thing that we need to understand about the wrath of God is that we need to know what it really looks like. See, wrath is anger. But it isn't the type of anger that we also often see in ourselves. It's not the type of anger that we often see in other people. God's wrath is not out of control. It's not unpredictable. It's not that fly-off-the-handle, impulsive, capricious kind of anger. God's wrath isn't the result of a sudden mood swing. God's wrath is controlled. It's settled. It's an abiding condition of God. It's part of who He is. In a sense, it's correct to say that God is always angry. He's always angry at sin. He's always angry at disobedience. He's always angry at injustice. It's correct to say that God is always angry. Just like it's correct to say that God is always pleased He's always pleased with righteousness. He's always pleased with faith. He's always pleased with obedience, pleased with justice. God isn't swinging wildly and unpredictably between these competing emotions. God's wrath and God's righteousness are parallel parts of God's just nature. God is always pleased with belief. But he's also always angry with denial. God is always delighted with faith. But he's also always angry with distrust. God is always gratified with obedience. But he's also always angry with rebellion. God is always pleased with those who serve. But he's always angry at those who make themselves their own Master, God's wrath and God's righteousness are parallel. They run side by side. They're both important parts of the nature and the justice of God. 
And while wrath and righteousness exist in parallel, they also exist in contrast. They provide a stark contrast for each other. Let me ask you a question. When do we best understand and appreciate the value of light? Well, we only recognize and truly appreciate light when we have experienced complete darkness. When light is contrasted with real darkness. And we only understand the depth of darkness when it's contrasted with bright light. The same thing is true of righteousness and wrath. The truth is, wrath provides this dark backdrop on which the gospel shines brightly. See, we can only recognize and appreciate the value and the power of the gospel when it's held up in contrast to God's wrath. I have another question for you. What makes Paul, Paul? What makes Paul obsessed with the gospel? What makes Paul fixated on preaching the gospel? What makes Paul burdened with this need to spread the gospel everywhere? Well, Paul's obsession and his fixation and his burden can only be understood and explained when they're held up in contrast to God's wrath. You see, Paul's confidence in the gospel, his passion for the gospel, it rests on his understanding of God's wrath. Paul's confidence and his passion rests on his unshakable belief that apart from the gospel, without the gospel, not only he but all of mankind, every person is under God's wrath. Paul appreciates the gospel. You know, it doesn't make any sense to talk about salvation if there isn't anything to be saved from. It's foolish to talk about redemption if there isn't anything to be redeemed from. The truth is, if we don't understand and appreciate the reality of the wrath of God, then the gift of the gospel is something that's not going to thrill us. It's not going to move us. Joy and the saving power of the gospel only comes when we realize what we've been saved from. Obedience and heartfelt worship only come when we recognize what God's power has redeemed us from. So we must appreciate the wrath of God so we can fully appreciate the wonderful gift of the gospel. I think one of the reasons why we don't fully realize and fully recognize and fully appreciate the reality of God's wrath is because, well, when we do think about it, when we do talk about it, we usually think about it and talk about it like it's this some future event, something that might occur somewhere in the future. And we're people who have a hard time taking things seriously that are in the future, don't we? We find it difficult. We find it difficult to focus on anything that isn't a present reality, isn't right in front of our faces. Why don't most of us save up money for our retirement when we're young? Well, because retirement's like way out there, right? It isn't right here. 
Why don't we take seriously and focus on the reality of God's wrath? Well, because we think that that's something that's way out there, not right here. We think God's wrath is something that's going to show up on judgment day, not right now. So we tend to talk about the coming wrath of God. But Paul, here in this letter to the Romans, reveals that the truth of God's wrath is that it is continually being revealed. It isn't something that's just way out there. It's also right here, right now, right in front of us. It's a present reality that we can see all around us. We can see it all of the time. So let's lend Paul our ears so that we can learn more about the true story of God's wrath. Let's read from Romans chapter 1. I'll start reading with verse 18. Paul says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities... His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. Well, what brings about God's wrath? What does Paul say draws God's anger? Well, Paul tells us that breaking the two greatest commandments, that draws God's anger. It brings his wrath. You'll remember what Jesus said when he was asked what the greatest, the most important commandment is. Jesus answered this way. He says, the most important commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Love God with your entire being and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, no wonder Paul highlights godlessness and wickedness as the things that draw out God's wrath. Godlessness, that's putting other things before God. That's loving other things more than God. That's worshiping other gods. And that breaks the most important commandment. Love God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. And wickedness, that's satisfying your desires and your appetites at the expense of others. That's the second most important commandment breaks the commandment of love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah, it's godlessness and it's wickedness that draws out God's anger, brings out his wrath. And Paul's going to talk a lot more about both godlessness and wickedness. We'll talk about it in the weeks to come. In the rest of our time today, what we're going to do is we're going to focus primarily on godlessness, and then next week we'll focus on wickedness. So what is Paul saying about godlessness? Well, he says that there's no excuse for godlessness. Remember what he said? He said, since the creation of the world, 
God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, they've been clearly seen. They're understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. Paul's saying that the truth of God's existence is obvious. He's saying that creation itself testifies to the truth of God. And all the creation that's around us, that doesn't reveal the gospel, but it does reveal the author of the gospel. Creation demonstrates the truth that there is a God, a God of eternal power and divine nature. Creation reveals that there is a creator. So Paul says, and I agree, that those are obvious truths. So even people who haven't seen or heard God's word, they have seen and they have heard God. They've seen and heard God in his creation. We can't know everything about God from his creation, but we can know the truth of his eternal power. We can know the truth of our dependence on him as our creator and our sustainer. And Paul says godless people, Godless people suppress that truth. They push that truth down. They hide that truth. They make a choice to ignore what's obvious. And instead of loving the powerful and divine creator, they choose to love other gods. So Paul continues on in verse 21. He says, For although they knew God... They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. And therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Well, Paul points out the truth that everyone worships something. If they aren't worshiping the creator, then they're instead worshiping something that the creator created. Godless people make their own gods. They make their own idols. When Paul wrote this letter, he was in Corinth. And Corinth was a city that was surrounded with pagan idols. And Paul is writing to people who are in Rome. They're also surrounded by pagan idols. And Paul says, how foolish. How foolish it is to substitute a lie for the truth. How foolish it is to substitute impotence for power. How foolish it is to substitute the common for the divine. It's an exercise in reducing God to man's level. It's an attempt to take what God has made and then pass it off as our own, as something we made. 
If you read through the prophets in the Old Testament, you'll see that the prophets hit on this theme over and over again. You'll see it also in the Psalms. The Psalm that we read at the beginning hits this theme very, very well. And Habakkuk wrote it this way, Habakkuk 2.18. He says, of what value is an idol since a man has carved it? Or an image if it teaches lies? For he who makes it trust his own creation, he makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him that says to wood, come to life. Or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It's covered with gold and silver, but there's no breath in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Did you catch that in all the sarcasm? Habakkuk's saying, you know, idols can't speak. Idols stand silent before the man who made them. But he says, ah, but God, on the other hand, God's in his holy temple. And the men who he made should stand silent before him. See, people have a tendency, instead of worshiping the Creator, to instead to worship the created. Instead of worshiping the Creator, the godless worship the created. Everyone worships something. And in our time, in this place, I'd argue that our biggest problem isn't in worshiping wood, and stone, and metal idols. See, the biggest problem that we see around us and that we struggle with is that we and our culture are drawn to worship of self. That's what Paul's talking about when he describes hearts that are set on sexual impurity. When he talks about the degrading of bodies with one another sexually. See, there's a dirty little secret about self-worship. There's a dirty secret of humanism, of man-centered worship. That, too, is idol worship. It's also worshiping the created instead of the creator. It's elevating ourself to God's level and reducing God to our level. And it not only reduces God and elevates us, it also dehumanizes other people. It dehumanizes our neighbors. It turns other people into objects that are to be used to satisfy us, satisfy our desires, satisfy our lusts. And when we worship self... When we reduce God, when we dehumanize our neighbors, we take ourselves into a place that we were never intended to be. We take ourselves into a condition that's below God's intended purpose for mankind. Because God's intended purpose was for us to love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, all of our minds, all of our souls, all of our strength. And God's intended purpose for us was to love others like we love ourselves. 
And when we take ourselves to that condition below what God intended for us to be, that draws God's anger, His current wrath. So what does God do? How can God's wrath be seen? How can it be seen currently all around us? What's the current reality of God's wrath? Well, Paul says we can see God's wrath. We can experience God's wrath. We can see it and experience it all around us because God gives godless people over to what they desire, literally over to what they over-desire. God gives godless people over. He gives idol worshipers, he gives self-worshippers over to those gods that they have created. Do you want to be in control? Do you want to rely on your own power and rely on your own abilities? Do you want to be your own God? God will give you free reign to do that. Do you want to pursue money or power or status or sex with all of your heart and mind and soul and strength? Do you want to make those things your God? God will give you free reign to do that. God's wrath will give you free reign to do that. God's wrath is seen all around us. Because God gives the godless over to the destructive and impotent hands of the gods that they have created. God in his wrath allows us to have what our hearts desire. He allows us to pursue and trust and embrace our created gods. And those gods lead to destruction. And those gods have no saving power. No wonder Paul isn't ashamed of the gospel. He isn't ashamed of the gospel because it's the good news of Jesus Christ that tells us that God has given godless people over to their gods. But it also tells us that our God hasn't given up on them. See, Paul isn't ashamed of the gospel because it's the good news of Jesus Christ. And it tells us that even when we choose to turn away from God, God still chooses to come near to us. Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel because the good news of Jesus Christ tells us that even in his wrath, God retains his love and his mercy. Paul isn't ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ and it tells us that even when we're chasing after what we want, God seeks to give us what we need. And that's the truth about God's wrath and it's the truth of the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, turn our hearts Turn our minds, turn our souls, turn our strength to you and you alone. Father, lead us away from worship of self. Lead us away from worship of of anything that would come in place of you. Father, lead us into the glorious light of your son, Jesus Christ, the glorious good news 
of Jesus who is the Savior. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Let me leave you with this from 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. Peter said, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness, but he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. To God be the glory. Let's end by standing and singing and praising the Lord, the God of wrath and the God of the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's stand. Let's sing. Sing.